One of the things that I've always and will always love about this church is that this is a church that loves the Bible. Um, we love reading it, singing it, praying it, sitting under it preached. Uh, that is a wonderful thing. That is a great foundation for any church, and so it is a, a joy to be here. Uh, especially because this morning we're going to look at nine chapters of the Bible in this one sermon. Uh, I was talking with someone this week and said, nine chapters of Joshua, huh? And they said, yeah, nine chapters. Uh, but to, to kind of sidle my way into this nine chapters, why we would do this, is one of my favorite types of art, of drawings and paintings, are those optical illusion paintings. You know the ones I'm talking about, are the drawings where there's pictures within pictures. And sometimes they're three and four layers deep. So you'll get a picture, there's one I saw that it looks like an old man kind of from one angle, you know, and he's kind of stenciled in with his, you know, rough beard and everything. But from another angle, it's a stack of books Uh, and on and on you can go. There's so many great optical illusion art or pictures within pictures that you can look up. Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And the reason why we're looking at nine chapters is not just because we need to get through them. Uh, This is not like the, uh, this is not like the, uh, the end of a movie, you know, where you're watching the, the, the credits run. Uh, no, th- there is one overarching point for this entire nine-chapter segment. Uh, so we're going to look at that. Actually, our first point will be, what is the big idea? Because there's one central big idea that these nine chapters are getting at. But then there's pictures within the pictures and stories within the story. So we'll try and draw out a few of those today. So today we will be looking at the allocating of the land, which is Joshua 13 through 21. Uh, and we'll take a look at this under three Points. So first we'll do the overarching big idea, the centerpiece of this whole nine chapters is God's promises, the fulfillment of God's promises. And so turn to Joshua 21, verse 43 and 40 through 45. That'll, that basically summarizes this whole section. And that'll be our first point. We'll draw out some of the little stories within that big story. And then we'll look at God's justice in chapter 20, another picture within the picture, and then God's priests in chapter 21. Uh, so God's promises, God's justice, and God's priests. So with that, Joshua 21, verses 43 and 45. Let's read these, these verses here. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. It would be very accurate to say that these verses are actually the theological centerpiece of the entire book of Joshua. Many commentators have said such. And the big idea for these nine chapters is the last part there of verse 45. That not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made had failed. The reason for all these names is this very thing, to drive home the point that God fulfills his word, that he's faithful to his promises. One commentator put it, put it well. He said this, the writer uses what I would call sledgehammer theology. He keeps pounding his point home as he pummels Yahweh's fidelity into our senses that not a word fell. Everything came to pass. So if you read through these chapters carefully, and I would encourage you to do so, uh, they seem to lay out these promises in excruciating detail. I mean, long lists of landmarks and lots of land which are given. And they're pretty tedious for us, particularly because we don't know the geography. But for the first readers who understood the geography, every name represents a fulfilled promise. 
Every landmark, every allotment, every list of names is representing once again the fulfillment of God's promises. That he is a promise-keeping God. So we could choose so many of the pictures from within these chapters to illuminate uh, the way that God has fulfilled his promise. I want to pick two, but first I want to give you the structure of chapters 13 through 19. Chapter 13, it outlines the allotments on the east of the Jordan. So for the two and a half tribes on the east of the Jordan. And then chapters 14 through 19 is all about the allotments on the west of the Jordan for the other nine and a half tribes. And in particular, 14 through 19 is bracketed by two critical characters, which are meant to highlight the faithfulness of God to his promises. So with that, flip back to chapter 14, and we're going to look at a section of chapter 14 so we can see this first character, which is Caleb. So chapter 14, let's go ahead and read verses 6 through 15. Caleb requests an inheritance. Here it goes. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again, as it was my heart. But my brothers, who went out, who went up uh, with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said those 45 years since the time the Lord has spoken his words to Moses, while Israel has walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was that day that Moses sent me. My strength is now as the strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the, uh, how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. And then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. So Caleb recalls us back to Numbers 13. As the story where they've come up out of the Exodus, they've seen God's marvelous work on the mountain, and now they're traveling their way up to the borders of the promised land to cross the Jordan. And Moses sends themselves 12 spies, one from each of the tribes. And 10 of the 12 come back and say, we are like grasshoppers. There's no hope for us. We are dismayed. We are ruined. We will be crushed. But Caleb and Joshua said, oh no, the land is good. Uh, The land is so good. The grapes are like watermelons. It's wonderful. Let's go up and take this land. They were faithful. But because the 10, and they're complaining, they turned us the hearts of Israel. And so everyone else died. So it is fitting that now when the fulfillment comes, the only two that were promised they would survive are there to see the fulfillment of God's promises. Everyone else, that generation died. They all died in the wilderness because of their faithlessness. Joshua and Caleb remained And they remembered the importance of that day. And so Caleb brings it to mind. It says, this is the day. This is the day of fulfillment. God has promised it. So give me my land. And Joshua does. 
Well, the rest of chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18, and 19, they start to unfold all this allotting of the lands, and we don't have time to get into all those details. They're worth reading for sure. But go to the end of chapter 19. We'll look at the last few verses of 19. And we will see the other half of this wonderful promise being fulfilled. Starting at verse 49, Joshua 19, 49 to 51. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritance that Eleazar, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. The promise has been fulfilled. And the two characters are held up as an example. The two who received the actual original promises from Moses when they were faithful spies. So God fulfills his promises. Now, some have responded, though. <clears throat> what about the fact that throughout these chapters, there are hints that, that the land isn't perfectly conquered? Uh, so, for example, Joshua fifteen sixty three says, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Or there's Joshua sixteen eight uh, ten. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. There's other phrases that recur throughout this section, but they did not utterly drive them out. What are we to make of these? Are we to say that God fulfills his promises mostly? How do we put these two things together? Because it says that not one promise has fallen. God has given them the land, and yet they don't have the perfection of the land. Well, it's an important question. And that's why we begin by emphasizing the fact, this bracketing of the fulfillment of God's promises. That's why it's structured that way. Because it's meant to highlight to us this incredible reality that the whole Bible teaches, and particularly the book of Joshua, that there is a tension and yet a relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The Bible lays out the absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute necessity of human responsibility. I would go so far as to say, if you you get this tension wrong, you misread the whole Bible. You make a hash of it. See, Moses prophesied about this very tension in Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 through 3. Listen, listen to the way he, he weaves these two things together without any hint of irony or, or conflict. Moses wrote this. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. That's what you have to do, Israel. And the cities are fortified up to heaven and people great and tall, the sons of Anakim. And you go on to verse 3. First, the emphasis here, the emphasis on you go and you displace them. You cross over. And yet, verse 3 begins this way. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility laid perfectly side by side. Or Spurgeon said, he makes it not his business to reconcile old friends. There's no ultimate conflict between these two realities. And that's what Joshua 14 through 19 is doing. God has been faithful to his promises. He has given them the land. And yet the people are responsible to take the land, to finish the work, to obey. This is one of the most brilliant narratival examples of what we would call the doctrine of sanctification. See, progressive sanctification is this lifelong process of growing in holiness. 
On the one hand, our sanctification is the Holy Spirit's work in us. But it's not only the Holy Spirit's work in us. It is the Holy Spirit's work in us to will and to do for God's good pleasure. It requires our continued growth. It requires our continued repentance. So the question is worthy of asking. What are the areas in our lives that God has declared us righteous and yet we are falling short of obedience? See, all Christians are those who have been regenerated. They're made alive in Christ, declared righteous before God. But that doesn't mean we're done. What are those areas in our lives where we need to grow more in line? See, continue to read the Old Testament. And what you will find is that they failed in these lessons. And it cost them greatly. You might take some of the sins that you you, you could see probably percolating here if you suss them out a little bit. Sins of laziness or apathy towards obedience. Maybe laziness is an area of your life where you need to grow. Could be laziness in all sorts of different areas. One of them might be laziness in being a disciple. See, being a disciple means a learner. It's one who's growing in their knowledge and love for God. It's pressing on. Or maybe apathy towards other commands. You know, are there other sins which you habitually have to confess to triads or community groups or friends or family? Friends, I would say if there's, if there's sins in our lives that we are habitually confessing, then we need to take a lesson from Israel. Because the sin that they habitually confessed, or in other words, didn't actually repent of, is the one that is eventually going to lead to their exile. By not dealing with this issue here, with these people in the land, eventually their heart is turned, and they're worshiping another god. And eventually their lack of repentance leads to their exile. First Israel in the north, and then Judah in the south. We cannot allow those sins to fester, to turn gangrenous, to destroy us. So what are those sins that we need to confess, that we need to repent of? See, throughout the New Testament, there's actually lists of these sins. They're called vice lists, and there's a whole bunch of them. But they're, they're good for us to read. They're meant for us to read so that we can evaluate. Are, are these areas in my life where, where I have, you know, we might call them personality flaws, but maybe they're not just personality flaws. Maybe they're sins that need to be cut off, to be dealt with, to be rooted out, like the Canaanites and like the Jebusites and others. See, for Christians who are struggling with sinful patterns like these, Here's the most important thing for us to remember, though. See, our sins ultimately have been nailed to the cross. The beauty of the gospel is that we're not in bondage to these sins anymore. Like the Israelites, God has fulfilled his promises and given us freedom. And so that, since that is true of us, the question is, will we walk in that freedom? Will we continue in repentance? Will we put to death the deeds of the flesh, as Paul will say? Or Peter puts it like this, wonderfully. Listen to how Peter weaves these two things together of God's sovereignty, of man's responsibility, of the Holy Spirit cleansing us, and yet of our continued repentance and obedience. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, or uh, 1, 3 through 4 starts with this. <clears throat> God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Notice the emphasis on God's work, on God's fulfillment, on his promises to his people. And then verses 5 through 8 continues. For this very reason of God's promises, of his fulfillment, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There, once again, is our responsibility to make every effort. So members of the gathering church, may we be those who make every effort to see the fulfilled promises of God as the fuel for ongoing sanctification, for growth and repentance, for pressing in and loving God and loving each other. So that is the big picture. The incredible blessing and faithfulness of God and his promises, which are fulfilled. So now that we've seen God's promises, we have to ask some more questions about God's justice. One of the sub-stories. So turn to chapter 20. You should be, should be right there. But we'll look at chapter 20, the first six verses. Joshua 20, verses 1 through 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. There shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to the one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in the city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer shall return to his own town and his own home and to the town from which he fled." And you might think, we've just taken a radical left turn. And from the promises of God to all of a sudden these cities of refuge? Well, here's why this actually is a, is a very clean, logical connection going on here. Now that God's people are in God's land, what do you think takes place? Well, this side of perfection, sin. Sin happens. That's what takes place. And living in a fallen and broken world means you need to have rules. You, you need to have ways of justice, of establishing justice. Fallen, living in a fallen world means that there are mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes can be costly. They can damage relationships. And so there are outlines and rules for justice. And particularly with this one issue is the issue of manslaughter versus murder, or intentional killing versus unintentional killing. So in order to ensure that there is a process for justice, we have these cities of refuge. And you can read about them in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 18. But the passage acknowledges that there's this difference between intentional and unintentional. If you're out in the woods and you're chopping wood and the axe head flies off the handle and kills your friend, well, that's unintentional. So normally the family would want to rise up and seek retribution. And so there were cities of refuge. So you could flee and say it was an accident and you could stand before the congregation and plead your case. But did you catch it? You had to stay there not just until he pleaded your case, but until the death of the high priest. What's that all about? Well, the cities of refuge allowed for a slowing down of the whole process. It allowed some time for you to plead your case. It allowed time for investigation. The city would not hand you over. You had the time to plead. And, and if it was in fact the case that, that you were going to, or you were proven to be, it was, it was unintentional, then you would live there until the death of the high priest so that family wouldn't leave. But, as you read in Numbers, if you leave the city, your life's on your own head. If you leave the city before the high priest... So the cities of refuge then, they served as both places of asylum, places of, of escape to, to hide, but also as a kind of a prison. And here's the reason why that is. It's because all life is precious. That every person created in the image of God is precious. So even unintentional killing is a serious, serious issue. 
Because someone has died who's been made in the image of God. That's why you stay there until the death of the high priest. Because there has to be an acknowledgement. So there's both an asylum element and a prison element. You couldn't go on with your life. You couldn't go on just going back to making your fortune. No, your accident, even if it was a freak accident, took the life of another person. And so you had to stay there. And there was a kind of prison sentence that took place there. You weren't allowed to leave until the high priest. And there's questions about the death of the high priest, if that was a kind of atonement for your sin or not. Those are interesting thoughts. But let me consider some points of application. Clearly, we see from these verses, the main emphasis here is that all life is precious, which is why you had to both flee to get rescued, but then also there was a, a kind of prison element to it. So let's apply these to recent events in Portland and in major cities around the world. There have been protests and riots because of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Tamir Rice, and many others. As Christians... What do we think about these things? What are we to make of them? How are we to respond to these events? Well, on the one hand, what the cities of refuge teach us is there has to be a slowing down of the process. That justice needs to be done. And sometimes to do justice requires investigation. It requires understanding what really was taking place. Was it intentional? Was it unintentional? I would say the knee-jerk reactions of rioting. That is anything but justice. That is a taking of justice into our own hands. It is a denial of justice and of the process of justice. Rioting and vandalism and theft, those are sinful. And yet, the impulse to grieve publicly, the impulse to protest peacefully, is exactly the kind of reaction that we should have. See, those peaceful protests are putting on display the reality that all Christians should feel, that every single human life is precious. Because made in the image of God. Friends, from the womb to the tomb, we must seek to preserve life. And so when life is taken, whether intentionally or accidentally, it should rock us. Along these same lines, I, I, I worry about some responses to COVID that seem to downplay the death of loved ones. Friends, it's obvious. Death happens. Death will come to us all should the Lord tarry. And there might be arguments to say that, that COVID is, is not all that much worse than a really bad flu. But as Christians, we cannot be numb to the fact that every death is the loss of someone made in the image of God. That every death is a rending of a family. So even if the deaths aren't as high as they might be or might first have been thought, the Christian impulse should be one of mourning, one of grieving. The one made in the image of God has died, has passed. Of course, there's arguments to be had for regarding what's the best governmental or economic response, of course. But may our first response be one of sorrow, of grief, of prayer for families who have lost loved ones to this illness. And one more term, which actually is doubly applicable. When speaking of how precious life is, we cannot overlook the millions of babies who are murdered in the womb each year. The World Health Organization reports a worldwide average of something around 56 million abortions a year. In the years 2010 to 2014, 25% of pregnancies ended in abortion. One in four. Perhaps a statistic which baffles me the most was that in 2014, 59% of abortions were done by women who'd already given birth to other children. They had already experienced the gift of life. I, I have such a hard time understanding that. I can't wrap my head around it. 
And the reason abortion is also important to address here because we're dealing with the preciousness of life. But we must remember that part of the reason for the conquest, the reason why Israel is there overthrowing Canaan was addressed back in Deuteronomy 12, 31, where we read that the Canaanites even burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Israel was being used by God to judge these nations in part because of their child sacrifice. And I cannot help but see a parallel in the abortion industry. Certainly the gods have changed in our day. Child sacrifices via abortion are on different gods, the gods of uh, whether it's expediency or poverty or pain or whatever other reason. But it certainly does make me wonder how long will God bear with such sinful nations? How long will he await in judging those who treat life so flippantly? And thankfully, the church is not Israel. Our calling is not to perform a conquest on the culture, but our calling is to be a people of mourning, of lament, and of prayer. And so, church, may we continue to support ministries like First Image. I love so much support that this church has done over the years and will continue to do for them. Give as you are able. Support those ministries. Also, don't forget to be praying for Joelle Lucas and the work that she's involved in in the pregnancy resource centers and pro-life work over in the UK. Pray for her. Thank God for her and pray that her and her tribe may flourish and their ministry would grow. As Christians, we know that every human life is precious before God. So may we be those people who are seeking to preserve life, to preserve life in every stage, the young and the old. So, We've seen God fulfills his promises. We've seen that God gives and grants justice. So finally, let's close with God's priests. Look at chapter 21. We'll just read verses 1 through 3. Joshua 21, 1 through 3. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And it goes on to list all of the, the pasture lands. So as we've seen with chapters 13 through 19, there's this listing of all the towns or all the providences and all the borders of all the different regions. And now here in chapter 1, we get this listing of the priest's towns, the Levite's towns. And once again, it can be a little bit daunting. Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty overwhelming to read all these lists of names and not know the geography particularly well. It might be good to pull out an atlas and walk through these things. But what it does show is a few things. First of all, the Levites did not receive their own inheritance. They lived in the cities that were dispersed all throughout the land. And one commentator has noted that the Levites, and Deuteronomy actually uses this word of them, they were a kind of parable because they were living as sojourners in the midst of Israel's promised land. See, even though God had fulfilled his promises and had brought Israel into the land that was to be their permanent home, the Levites, scattered all the way throughout Israel, living in these towns as sojourners, were meant to be an example, a picture, that the ultimate home was not even that promised land. But there was a better land to come. Israel was to imitate the Levites who did not receive a physical inheritance, but their inheritance was to serve and live for the Lord. See, it's interesting how much this idea of land and personhood ties together. 
I can't tell you how many movies you can read and, and hear words like this. I think of this one of, oh, brother, where art thou? Is, you ain't no kind of man if you ain't got land. Uh, and, and that's a theme that runs throughout many movies. It, it's bound up with the American dream, with the idea of the freedom to pursue, pro, uh, pursue uh, prosperity and success. And oftentimes that was bound up with home ownership. But if we learn a lesson from the Levites, we should see that while we must be good stewards over our resources, those resources must not ever become idols which define us in our own worth. The inheritance that should shape and form every Christian is the far greater inheritance of the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is our down payment, Paul calls him. And far more than a physical inheritance that we receive now in the temporal life is the physical, eternal inheritance we will receive in the next life. Matter of fact, this is one of the major arguments of the book of Ezekiel, one of my favorite of the prophets. You see, the people kept saying, there's no way Jerusalem's going to fall. Oh, sure, we were naughty. We've, we've been exiled. We're way out here on the Kebar Canal, some, you know, 700 miles away. But there's no way Jerusalem's going to fall. And for the first 20 chapters of the book, Ezekiel says, Jerusalem's going to fall. Jerusalem's going to fall. Jerusalem's going to fall. And finally, I think it's chapter 24, word comes that Jerusalem has fallen. And the people are crushed. They're mortified. How can the city of the great king have fallen? Well, friends, if we overly hope in the things of here now, we'll be like them. We will be crushed. This is why the author of Hebrews says that Christians have already begun to inherit our ultimate inheritance, which is not an earthly Jerusalem, but a heavenly one. Here's Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Did you hear that? We have come. Christian, your present reality is that your citizenship is in heaven. See, and just as how God was faithful to his promises under the Mosaic covenant, the argument of Hebrews is how much more Will God be faithful to his promises in the new covenant? The covenant secured by the blood of his son. See, the Levites are meant to teach us a very important lesson. That while we live here, we should seek to thrive by focusing on our ultimate home, our final inheritance. But this is why Peter calls us as Christians to be a kingdom of priests. Because like the Levites, we're meant to live in the midst of the rest of the people. We're to be those who are a picture, a parable of what it looks like to live not for this age, but for the age to come. And so I just want to address the fact that perhaps you're tuning in and you're not a Christian. And maybe you would think, well, just, I just don't even know that there is an age to come. Well, many have wrestled with those thoughts over the years. Here's a, a quote from Tolstoy dealing with this very issue. Tolstoy wrote this. My question that which at age 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed as thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. Did you catch what Tolstoy is saying? If death is there, then why? 
What's the point? What is the purpose? Why do anything? Because death will erase it all. Very much the argument of part of Ecclesiastes as well. But we need to deal with these kinds of questions. And in fact, one of the ways that people are dealing with these questions is a new kind of growth industry, you might call it. It's philosophical counseling. Uh, The Washington Post has called it the intellectual life coaches. And they're making arguments to try and encourage people to live fulfilled lives, even though death is there. If you read some of these philosophical counselors, their aim is to get people to enjoy their plot of land now, to enjoy the time now, to basically just stop worrying about death, to live as though it's not really there, that it's not really waiting for us all. They're trying to convince themselves that death is not looming in the distance. You see, friends, the promise of the Christian gospel that there is life after death is the good news, that there's a permanent inheritance that awaits See, the gospel says that there was only one way to fix this broken world. And that is that the son of God had to become a man. And in doing so, he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And he was murdered for the sins that we committed. But the gospel doesn't stop there. It goes on that three days later, after dying and being put in the tomb, he rose from the grave, guaranteeing a future resurrection, demonstrating the reality of life after death. Now, some of you might wrestle with, how can there be life after death? How can there be resurrection? I can commend many good resources to you. Uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ or Tim Keller's The Reason for God would be two of of many others. But this morning, let me just give you one quick little little, uh, point that I've always found so persuasive. Pascal once said this. He said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Which is to say this. People do not go to their grave for a lie, for a made-up story. And as Keller notes, virtually all the apostles and early church leaders died for their faith. It's hard to believe that this kind of powerful self-sacrifice would be done to support a hoax. So again, if if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you, think deeply on these things. Sure, a home and inheritance and life here can be wonderful. But if eternal life begins when this life ends, then friends, please understand, this life is like the first page of a prologue to the greatest story ever written. Oh, friends, make sure that you know how this story plays out. Make sure that you know whether or not your story ends at death or whether that's just the first page of the greatest story there could ever be. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it so wonderfully, friends, we can go on further in and further up. So to recap, Joshua 13 through 21 puts on marvelous display that God keeps his promises, that not one word has failed with regard to the land that they inherited. And the land was not merely just a place for them to live, but it was a place for them to live in the presence of God. And so it was to be a just land where each and every human life was precious. And to accomplish this, he gave them Levites to live as a parable among the people, to teach the people, to be those who mediated as priests, the presence and worship of God. And I hope you see how all three of those points find their fulfillment in Jesus. You see, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. And after raising from the dead, he went to prepare a place for us. The heavenly Jerusalem would come down like a bride adorned for her groom, the eternal kingdom. And though his life was more precious than any, he suffered injustice to pay the price for his bride. And when the reality of God's dwelling with man in the land of Israel finally came to pass, Jesus with them, Emmanuel, they murdered him. 
And then finally, Jesus is our great high priest. He's the ultimate sojourner. His entire life aimed at death. And yet he rose to intercede for those who turned to him. And in fact, on the cross, before his death, Jesus cried out, it is finished. Which we might say is a New Testament completion of Joshua 21, 45. Not one word. Of all the good promises that the Lord made failed. All came to pass. That, my friends, is the reality that these chapters point to. That Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. That though sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Would you pray with me?